So, as I was uh, studying over the last couple of weeks, uh, I don't. I think Jason and I have a very similar process. We kind of we kind of look out, not just the one that's coming up, but we start to think about the ones that are behind that. And so I've been thinking about this one for a couple of weeks, and and I'm trying to do some work on my own of of kind of. Uh, bringing things into tighter focus in this time, because I want to make great use of our time. But I ran across this, um, this question that I think it would be important for us to consider, uh, in, just in the context of our, our spiritual lives. But this series that we're, uh, that we're, that we're in right now, um, these stories from uh, the Gospel of John, the idea of the absent God, that sometimes it just feels like we, we're like, are, are, you, are you even there? Are you, are you listening to us? Uh, are you paying attention to our plight? And I think we've all been in a position where we've wondered that. And so the question is this, and I think maybe depending on the answer to this question may answer the other question of why sometimes we feel like God isn't near. And the question is this, are you coming to God for God? That, that's the words to that song. I want to be where you are. Are you coming to God for God? Or are you coming to God with what your heart's really after? And that is something else. Are we, are we pursuing a relationship or the presence of God for at its ultimate point, his presence with us, to receive from him anything that he has to offer to us, to be obedient to him in any way that he asks us to be? Or are we seeking God in hopes that he's going to give us something else that we really want? And I would suggest to you that if you find yourself like I have, look, I can identify with this statement. There are times when I'm, I'm drawing near to God, I'm trying to kind of get up close to God because there's something I want, or there's a solution that I, that I desire. And what God really calls us to is to thirst for nothing more than him. And then in him, we find the solutions, the answers, the strength, the encouragement, the understanding. If we flip those two around, I don't know about your experience, but my experience is often then I've actually put limits on what God can do and what God can say to me because I'm only listening about the thing that I have on my brain. I'm only pursuing the thing that, that I'm wrestling with as, a, as opposed to pursuing God. And it may be that the answer to whatever I'm wrestling with lies in something else, but I'm not paying any attention to it. God's trying to direct my attention to it or God's trying to speak to me about something but I'm not listening to what he's saying about that because I'm just focused on this thing that I desire. And that sounds like, I think it's something that we, we can all share in common. We can identify times perhaps when we do that. But I want to give you a little bit extra caution there 
Because if we're not careful, uh, there are some things that we might uh, throw into that, that mix, or we might pursue some things so heavily to the, to the exclusion of what God's really trying to tell us that we actually put ourselves in a position where we're worshiping that other thing as opposed to worshiping God. And that could become a dangerous place to be. It puts us, uh, to some degree, outside the protection of God because we're outside of his will, right? See, when you, when you walk outside of what God desires for you, you put yourself in danger of the enemy being able to attack you, or, or maybe you just put yourself in danger of making your own stupid mistakes, right? Anybody? Can I get a witness? Amen? And so I really want that question to, to kind of land in us. What are you pursuing? Uh, are you really pursuing at your, at your core this relationship with God? Is it really God that you want? The psalmist said, said it like, like this, right? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Joe mentioned this to us in a message uh, here a few weeks ago. What if we longed for God instead of longing for just solutions or answers or, or whatever, but just for God? So this morning's passage comes out of the book of John. Uh, we're, we're in there for the next couple of weeks, and we have been for the last couple of weeks. We're going to start in John chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. If you want to jump there with me, if you've got it on your phone or you brought a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, we'll have the, the words here on the screen as well. But what I want to do is I just want to read this entire story, and then I just want to go back and I want to pull out like three things uh, that jumped out at me as I studied through this that I think might be helpful to us in this idea of pursuing God and not pursuing stuff or things or answers or things that we think we need, but just allowing God to give to us or to speak to us or to teach to us what he knows that we need. All right, so here we go. I hope. All right, Hunter, can you help me out back there? Actually, let me reconnect. Maybe it's just me. You know, I spent about 15 years professionally working in the computer industry. They're not your friends. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen Transformers, but... Uh, they were going to make life so much easier, weren't they? All right, I'm stuck. Oh, woo, thank you, Jesus. All right, okay. After this... Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. All right, so we, we just note right here that the notoriety of Jesus is building in the community, in the countryside, in the places where he's traveling because of the miracles that he's performing. Now, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? 
And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. And by the way, that's about $15,000 he's talking about there. So uh, Philip picked a number that seemed extravagant, right? And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Growing up uh, as a preacher's kid, you know, always in Sunday school, always at church. I remember hearing this story when I was a kid, and it was fascinating to me. One of the things I loved about it was the fact that there was a little boy in the story, right? I said, hey, that could be me, like, you know? And, uh, and that was fascinating to me. But I just loved, I loved the idea of Jesus looking at the need that was around him and challenging those next to him to say, what could we do about this? Hearing their ideas and then and then God, Jesus, coming in with his solution. I think this isn't a bad picture of how our lives with each other should work sometimes. When we are facing those problems and, and we are seeking answers. I, I don't mean to say that when we should seek God that we shouldn't seek answers for the things that are going on in our lives. He, he asks us to do that, right? He says, you know... Um, Cast your burdens on me. The, the place, I think, where we, we kind of get off track is that if we were in charge of this situation, we might end up focused on the fact that there's 5,000 men, which, by the way, most scholars believe that this means, uh, obviously, it wasn't just men hanging around, right? We, we know from other stories that mixed in the crowds of those who were following Jesus, there were children, because this, this one occasion happens where the children are trying to get close and the disciples are like, hey, you kids, get out of here. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, hey, don't do that. These little ones, they, like, they understand the kingdom of God. You make sure they can get as close as they possibly can. And then there's other times where we see the stories of, uh, particularly like the woman uh, who has the issue of blood. She, she works her way through the crowd until she, she can just grab the hem of his cloak and she's healed. And so we know that in these stories like this one where it says there's 5,000 men, there are women and children there as well. And most scholars believe that there were actually probably about 20,000 people following Jesus at this time. 20,000. That's twice the capacity of the Sullivan Arena. Pretty close. That's a lot of people. And if we were in charge of this situation, if, if Jesus wasn't in this scenario, or if we weren't seeking God for his presence, 
but we're only seeking God for solutions, we might look at this situation and go, there's absolutely nothing we can do about this. Even if we had 15 grand in our pocket, we couldn't feed 20,000 people enough that they would get more than just a little, is what Philip said. And so we need a lot more than that. And then if we discovered, you know, let's say we're at the Sully for an Aces game. Boo, Aces. And the place is packed out, and there's no food. But there is some kid that's got a couple of dogs and a soft drink. It's not going to solve the problem, is it? You know, we could, get, we could get the razor blade out and do like the, the mob guys used to do when they were making their, their marinara. You know, they get the razor blade out and take the garlic and slice it. So that, I mean, you could read through it. It almost didn't exist. It was so thin. We could try to slice up those hot dogs small enough to feed 10,000 people. It's not going to work. And that's why I think sometimes we're like that. We get focused on the solution as opposed to focusing on the one who can actually solve the problem. And, and if we get focused on the solution, then we start to put parameters on God about how he's going to do that. And that's how we limit God's work in our lives, is by putting constraints and boundaries and, and, and parameters on God that say, well, yes, I want you to help me. I want you to assist me. I want you to, to help me work through this problem or this thing that I'm considering, I need to make a choice, but I only really want your answer to fall within these boundaries. And I would say 100% of the time when we do that, the answer we do end up with, if we end up with one, is ours, not his. So we see a couple of things that happen in this scenario. 20,000 people. We go back to verse 2. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now you go back with me and just think. Both in, uh, prior to this story and then after this story. In fact, we heard one last week. The healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, right? He's laying there for, we don't know how long, like three decades or something. And he hasn't been healed. And Jesus heals him. The, the religious leaders, they're upset because the, the guy's carrying his bed on the Sabbath. They, they're not upset that he laid there for 30 years and couldn't even lift up his head, basically, but... But now he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath, so they're mad because he's working. You're not supposed to labor on the Sabbath. And they're like, who, who, who told you to do this? And the guy's like, I don't know. I, just, you know. I was laying there. I was laying in my same spot. I've been laying in for 30 years. And he came by. He healed me. He told me to take up my bed and walk. And listen, I haven't walked in 30 years. If, if some guy tells me that I can do that, I'm doing it. Later, he ends up at the synagogue, and he, and he sees Jesus teaching. He goes, hey, that's the guy. And then he begins to tell people. But, but think in your minds, other stories that you've heard from the Bible, what are the kinds of things that Jesus is doing? It's like giving sight to blind people. Some blind from birth. Um, he's raising the dead. 
like the man's daughter, Jairus's daughter. He's um, the centurion's son. It's causing people who, who've, been, who've been deaf, haven't heard a sound their entire lives, their ears are popping open and they're hearing for the first time the, the, the wonder of nature around them, the song of birds and the bustle of people. He's healing withered hands and legs and the word is spreading. And these people have come to see what's happening. And it tells me this. When people see the work of Jesus, they want to know more. We wonder sometimes, why aren't people coming to Christ? Why aren't more people coming to, to church with us? Why aren't uh, people in the world? Why doesn't Christianity have this positive image? Why isn't Christianity out there sometimes doing positive things? Why are people so opposed to the gospel and to Jesus Christ? And I think a lot of times it's not because that they're opposed to Jesus Christ so much as they're opposed to what they see of Jesus Christ. And we as the church, and when I say church, I mean big C, the church, we as the church sometimes are presenting an image of Christ that, that people don't want anything to do with because we're really not presenting Jesus. We're presenting religion. We do a pretty good job of that. We do a pretty good job of presenting rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. And God certainly gives us guidelines in his scriptures, right? He gives us things to live by. Our church... Uh, motto, for lack of a better word, everything that we think about, everything that we do, always boils down to these two core things. They're the two core things that Jesus himself said were the most important things to meditate on and to consider as, as the greatest commandments. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, your whole being, everything about you, love God. That's, that's that idea of pursuing God, right, not solutions, Love God. Love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. And modern Christianity has a tendency to just get wrapped up in a lot of reasons why we can't hang out with or can't uh, be nice to or can't show love to certain groups of people that have no real foundation in, in biblical Christianity. So you don't have to agree with someone to love them. Just because you love someone doesn't mean you support everything they're about and everything they're doing. In fact, often it's completely the opposite of that, right? Sometimes we really, we love people sometimes because we want to see better. But we have this tendency, I think. It's kind of the low-hanging fruit of, being, of, of spouting judgment and, and spouting uh, things that the Bible says that are hard for people to hear because they're not ready to hear instead of showing them the love of Christ first. And I believe, just like happened here, if we would show who Jesus is, the work of Jesus in our lives, our testimony about what God has done, if we would show that, is that Angela right there? Is that your smile I see? It's hard to tell. Yeah, right? We just talked about this. Sorry, is it Rich? Oh, yeah, Rich is there too. All right, awesome. And there's Miles. Hey, buddy. Um, we, she and I just talked about this the other day, this powerful verse out of Roman, or out of uh, Revelation, that... that 
the saints are able to overcome the work of the enemy by the blood of the lamb. We believe that, right? The work of Jesus, the sacrifice of the cross, the blood of the lamb, yeah. And the word of their testimony. See, God's story in your life has power. And it has power to show who Jesus is to the people around you. And I believe that when people really see the work of Jesus, whether it's a miracle, and I've seen those with my own eyes, or it's the miracle of God's work in your life, if they see that, they will want to know more. That's verse 2. Verse 6. Now, this is where the story says, Jesus looked out and he saw this massive crowd of people blobbing over the mountainside, right? What am I going to do? And he says, what should we do, guys? And I love this. He asked Philip this question, right? To test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Now, notice this isn't a, uh, don't get confused about how God might test people. God doesn't test us in ways to catch us in an aha moment, right? He's not, he's not, look, he's not looking for opportunities to go, ah, I gotcha. <laughs> I knew it. He's not like that. The Bible says God doesn't test us that way. When God tests the disciples here, he's testing them to understand their faith because he wants to teach them something. See, when God tests us, that's his motive, that's his goal um, because when he teaches us something, then we know more about him and when we know more about him, we want to draw closer to him and not our stuff. And so he's, he's really asking not so much how are we going to feed these people, he's really asking do you trust me? Because the answer to the question is obvious. The disciples are not going to feed these people. They don't have enough change in their pockets, and they don't have enough food in their packs. So Jesus asked this question to test him, and it tells me this. When our challenges arise, those ones that sometimes we focus on the, the challenge or the solution or the question more than we focus on the God who can help us with them. When challenges arise, Jesus already knows what to do. But he will check to see what you're thinking. If that's true, I don't think there's any shame in the disciples giving the answer that they gave. Because listen, sometimes um, I find myself, in fact, I laugh at myself about this fairly often. I will see God do something totally amazing, maybe even something that I was praying for or something totally unexpected, and I go, wow, that's crazy. God did that. And I think, and how many times have I had this same conversation? Right? I've, I've seen God work in tremendous ways over and over, 
many, many different times in many different circumstances. I've seen his hand work, and then I still get surprised when it happens. Am I dense? Don't answer that. Because you are too. Because you get that, right? You've experienced that. I think there's, I think there's some reasons behind that, and, and, and that'll kind of be the, the last point here, but I don't know if that is a, a, a symptom of how we're still broken. Even though we've, we've received Christ, those of us who are following him and, and have committed ourselves to be disciples, even though we've become a new creation and we're being created every day, we're growing, the Bible teaches us that there's this condition of sin in the world still causes things to be broken and out of whack, and, and we can't fully, can't fully see God's work and his kingdom today here on this, this earth. The Apostle Paul says, you know, right now it's like I'm looking through a glass, but it's dim, it's dirty, and I can't quite see all the details. But someday when I'm with him in heaven fully in the kingdom of God, I'll see everything crystal clear. But for now, it's like shadows and light, and sometimes I get a glimpse that's, that, I, oh, I really recognize that, and then it gets clouded back over. I don't think God takes any pain with that. He understands. Now, now, there are times when we are just being dense. Uh, what's a, a Shawshank Redemption? Are you being intentionally obtuse? Um, what did you jump say? Sorry, I'm going to go off on a movie rant there. There are times, however, I, I think of the, the uh, adventure that Jesus had with two of the disciples on the, the mountaintop, and, and they're up there, and the clouds have come down, and and Moses and Elijah actually appear and are speaking to Jesus and the disciples. And they, they're having this, you know, a mountain, literal mountaintop experience. Same thing happened with Moses in the Old Testament. He'd go up and be in the presence of God. And, and God's presence would be so incredible. He'd come down and his, his face would shine like a, like a sun. And the people were like, whoa, weird. Jesus comes down from the mountain you know, and you've had mountaintop experiences, right? Like, you, this is awesome. And then you come back to reality, and people are like, dumb. The people around you are like, what's wrong with you? That's what Jesus said. He came down. The disciples are like, oh, I'm so glad you're back. We've been trying to heal this guy of this demon, and we can't do it. And Jesus is like, oh, you guys. What is wrong with you? So sometimes it's like that because we're, we're kind of being intentionally obtuse. But this scenario where... We're just faced with a circumstance that we don't have the resources. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to fix this, Jesus. I mean, if, if we had 20 grand in our pocket, it wouldn't work. If we had 25 grand, it, it, we couldn't fix this. And then you heard the story. One of the disciples, Andrew, brings over this, this little boy with the hot dogs and the drink, right? Some fish and some bread. Now, I always pictured in my mind that these fish were like little floppy fish, you know, like little trout or something that you catch, but that's probably not the case because, you, you know, you're in the desert. There's no refrigeration. <laughs> probably not carrying around a lot of fresh fish. 
fresh fish, you know. Probably either pickled or dried, uh, dried like our native friends would do here um, and many places across the globe, or, or pickled some way preserved so that it could be kept. But whatever the case, it was like still nowhere near enough, almost comically not enough. Like, could you, could you imagine passing around the, the fish, you know, just, just a nibble, you know? It's like, uh, it reminds me, <laughs> my boys will identify this. Uh, if Karen ever asks you if she can have a drink of something that you have, say no. <laughs> can I get a witness back there? Yeah, because, you know, can I have a drink? It'd be like, mm, no. And you know how that's, it, that's how it would be. Even if you wanted to pass around the fish and the bread to people and say, look, only take a little nibble, you know there's going to be people, right? It's going to take more than they should. So there's no way it's going to work. It's absolutely impossible. So when God sees the work of Jesus... When people see the work of Jesus, people want to know him more. When challenges arise, Jesus already knows what to do, but he will check out what you're thinking. And then last, verse 3. Or verse 12, sorry. And 13. So think of this. 15, 20,000 people. When they had eaten their fill. And you know what that's like too, right? <laughs> yeah, I hear it, Scott. Gonna let the belt out, you know? I mean, I don't know if people were, were being gluttonous, but they ate until they were satisfied. The story says Jesus took the gift of those little fish and those little loaves of bread, and he blessed them, gave them to the disciples, and said, go feed everybody. I would, I would, oh, man, I would love to just be able to see that happen, that scenario right there. <laughs> like, what, what, is the, what is on the disciples' faces at this moment? Are the, do they buy in? They're like, oh, yeah, right? I, I, and I don't know, because I think they were kind of like you and me, and so I've seen God do miracles, and if I were in that moment, I'd be like, what are you talking about? This will never be enough. But they went. They obeyed. And the people received enough food to be satisfied. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples... Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. I'm sure there's significance to the 12 baskets, 12 disciples, right? So that each one of them could see. Because again, uh, 20,000 people, 12 guys helping to feed them. Think about literally the physical distance between them as they're serving and working with some people. So if only this guy over here got a full basket, that disciple over there wouldn't know the miracle that had happened. 
with his own eyes. And so God provided for each one of them to see fully what he had done. The work of Jesus' hand, feeding these people with abundance, more than they needed. And each disciple saw then that miracle and and the, the plenty that remained with their own eyes. There's a principle in here, too, that I just thought of. It's, it's not in my notes. I, but I love this phrase. Every time I read it, I love this phrase. Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Man, this is, this is Jesus right here. See, that's what he did with me when he called me to be a disciple. He was gathering up leftover fragments that he desired not to be lost. Sometimes when you're thinking, I'm messing this up, or God probably is not happy with me, or God doesn't really like me because I'm not really doing. If God called you, it's because deep in the DNA of God is his desire for nothing to be lost. We see it in the three beautiful stories of the, the lost coin, that the woman calls her friends and they turn the house upside down trying to find this coin. When they find it, they have a big party, right? And the lost sheep, there's 100 sheep. The shepherd's happy because he's got 99, but there's one lost, and he says, oh, no, that, that can't happen. And he leaves the 99 to go find the one. And the fantastic story of the, the prodigal son who goes off wastes everything that the father has given to him and yet the father still stands on the stands on the edge of the road the porch at the house every day looking towards the horizon hoping that son's going to come home and when he does he doesn't punish him he doesn't shame him he welcomes him home he throws a big party and he celebrates because that which was lost has been found and we see that here gather up the leftover fragments not just to be good stewards of the resource, not just to be good uh, managers of the funds and to, to feed other people, but to say, to, to give this, this message that deep in the heart of God is the desire for no one, nothing to be lost. Nothing's a throwaway. No one is a throwaway. Everyone matters. And so last point. The boy gave his lunch, basically, right? Jesus took it, fed 15, 20,000 people. When we give Jesus what we have, he gives us and others what he has. And it's always so much more than what we gave him. When people see the work of Jesus, they want to know him more. When challenges arise, Jesus already knows what to do, but he will check in with you and see what you think. And when we give to Jesus what we have, 
He gives us and others what he has. And it's always so much more. Now, right after all of these events occur, evening falls. Jesus has retreated somewhere. And it says this. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I talked about that, that thing where we see God work, and then it's like we forget. You know, we're obtuse. Here it is. They just watched Jesus feed 20,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. They get out in the boat, the seas get rough, and they're like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. And then they see Jesus out there walking on the water. Right? They see him and they're still afraid. And I'm so thankful for every circumstance like this that we see. Jesus just shows his love. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't come up to the boat and go, are you guys being intentionally obtuse? He doesn't say, what's wrong with you guys? You remember what just happened, like literally three hours ago. Were you, did you remember that? Have you forgotten every single thing I've done? What is wrong with you guys? He doesn't give them any of that. He sees their condition. He sees their need. And he says to them those important words that he says so many times, don't be afraid. Now, they could have, if this were like the NBC version of, like, you know, NBC television, like, you know, Mo, you know the Noah thing, the water world, John Voigt. Is anybody? Anybody? They're terrible. Um, somebody just told me they were really excited to go see the movie Samson, and then they were just like, oh, it was awful. It was terrible. It was like, so not the biblical story. So if Hollywood made this little scene right here, it may very well have been that when Jesus came up to the boat, the disciples freaked out and started swinging at him with oars and tried to take him down and sank the boat. But that's not the actual story here. It says that they see him. He tells them, don't be afraid. They recognize who he is. And they receive him into their craft. They take him into their circumstance. Right? It says they're glad to. Like, oh, oh Jesus, it's so good to see you. They take him in. And what happens? Immediately, their circumstance is better. They'd rode for three or four miles. The, the Sea of Tiberias was... 
10 or 11 miles across. We're halfway there. Jesus got in the boat, and it says immediately they were transported to where they were going. Listen, that's the kind of Jesus I want in my life, is the one who, if I will let him, whether it's trying to feed 20,000 people or I'm in a circumstance and I'm getting swamped and I'm afraid, that if he comes to me, if I'll let him, whatever my circumstance, it might, might not be solved, right? might not be solved in the way I think it should be solved because I'm not seeking my solutions, I'm seeking God. But every time he shows up and I will invite him into my circumstance, it will be better. If for nothing else, because I will not be alone. He wants this for you. He wants this for me. You just have to, you have to take it, you have to receive it. You have to be willing to, to give up and let him do his work. Let him do what he wants to do. Uh, you, can, you can try to feed the 5,000 with what's in front of you, or you can ask God to help you. And every circumstance of our life is like that. We can do it, or we can ask him to do it for us. Would you stand for closing prayer? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause the light of his face to shine upon you. May he turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. Lord, I don't know uh, all the circumstances here. I know my circumstances. I know the circumstances of this church as we've struggled this year with finances. And Lord, you continue to, to help us and to bless us. But Lord, I confess sometimes I want to get right in the middle of it and, and try to use my solutions, but I don't want that. I don't want that for my life. I don't want that for this church. I don't want that for these lives that are represented here. Lord, what I want more than anything is for your presence, for you to be with me. And for me, for all of these, to more and more every day become people who desire nothing more, nothing greater in our lives than you. And that as we pursue you, everything else, everything else would be subject to you. To your desires, your will. Lord, that we would follow you. Lord, we do love you. Thank you for being so good to us. In Jesus' name.